Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. This is Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. To my right is Patrick Scott. Hello, hello. And to his left is me, George Akla. Today we are talking about... Warren Buffett's least favorite industry. Should we keep it a secret or are we telling them right now? Oh, I don't know what it is. It's your your secret to spoil. No, you, you literally wrote the story, didn't you? Oh, did I? Yeah, oh. you did. Oh, okay. Uh, should I spoil it now? Yeah, spoil it. Okay, airlines. If any of you have tried to travel this summer, there's probably a pretty good chance you got delayed. There's been talks of strikes. The government somehow plays into this, and we'll be covering all of that and more. As a reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only. As always, do your own due diligence when dealing with financial matters. Contact a trusted representative. Now for the market rundown for this week, it's been pretty sideways. S&P 500 still 9% off of its all-time highs. There's still this fear of this higher for longer interest rate policy that the Fed has kind of outlined how that's going to affect the markets. We've seen a drop of about 6% in the past couple weeks, but this week was relatively unchanged, um, so I don't think we need to go too far into that. However, it's been all about strikes this week. 75,000 Kaiser Permanente Employees walk out in the largest healthcare strike ever in the U.S. And Kaiser is weird because it's like a nonprofit healthcare. But from what Patrick was telling me, they're a pretty ubiquitous name within that industry. Yeah, I didn't know that they were a nonprofit. That's interesting. I know that like the big three automakers, their rallying call has been, you guys have been so profitable or the CEO's pay is just grossly overcompensating. I don't know how you do that in a nonprofit either way. Um, They represent 600 medical facilities and 39 hospitals nationwide. Uh, So so a very big name. And as healthy, young people, this isn't a grave concern to us. But I'm sure it is a concern if your primary physician just walked out or, you know, you have an elective surgery coming up. It doesn't seem like this is maybe one that will continue. They're only a couple days into the strike, and they seem to have been making a little bit of headway. But we'll definitely keep you updated in in the coming weeks if this continues on. Yeah, it looks like their total employee count is around 300,000. So 75,000 are on strike right now, so it's a a decent chunk. As we talk about strikes, we got to mention the automotive strike, which we had an episode two weeks back with Joe. As expected, it has proved to be costly. The Michigan-based Anderson Economics Group estimates that it has cost the economy just under $4 billion, with a third from suppliers, people who are supplying parts to companies like Ford and GM. If Ford and GM aren't demanding those parts, like they have to shut down their plants too. A third from the actual companies, so GM, Ford, Stellantis, and a third from customers and dealers who are losing money, who aren't getting inventory, that sort of thing. So just under $4 billion, that's, that's actually less of an impact that Ronaldo had when he moved the, those Coke okay, bottles well, we, off the we, screen. <laughs> we discussed that that might have been uh, association, not causation. But I digress. In Patrick's mind, soccer runs the world, or football, as he would like to call it. I don't call it that. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyways, roughly 25,000 workers are currently on strike. I think when they first announced a strike, it was only a couple thousand at those few plants. We announced... Two weeks ago, how their plan was 
to slowly put more and more people on strike, and that's what they've done thus far. But it is important to note that it represents only about 17% of Sean Fain's ability to get people to strike at the big three. So less than 20% of workers who could strike are on strike. There's a lot more room for more damage in the economy. I mean, you can see that if it's already at $4 billion in two weeks, you can just imagine what will happen if, you know, 50, 60% of people go on strike. We'll keep you covered with that, but not a ton of headway seems to be being made with that strike, which isn't a good sign if you're MGM or Wynn Resorts or any of the big resorts from Las Vegas, as their culinary union announced that they were very discouraged by the negotiations they had. This union is made up of 53,000 service industry workers who have already authorized the use of a strike so it's pretty eminent as negotiations have been ongoing for the past five months there doesn't really seem to be an end in sight especially it seems like people were hoping that these tuesday negotiations weren't going to go well they didn't and we might have a strike there as well but if vegas has one thing to cheer about is did you see the sphere and how that opened the sphere the las vegas is like venue oh no with like no. all the digital panels on the outside and no, everything I no okay have you seen any videos of those no not yet okay look up the sphere on the outside and we, we got to get patrick's live reaction because it's pretty incredible so patrick just watched the video what do you think Wow, that's that's crazy. I mean, yeah, that yeah, <laughs> that's that's crazy. Yeah, for for those of you who haven't seen it, basically, it's this massive dome, like many many stories high, but the exterior is covered with LEDs. So they claim the display is like a high definition TV on the outside. Yeah, yeah. So they can put all these crazy designs on there, and then the inside they made it like the most immersive theater ever. And then what did they say in the video? Like 76,000 speakers or 176,000 or some... I think 176,000 speakers, um, 17,000 seats. I mean, not super connected with investing besides the fact that you can actually invest in the Sphere. Uh, that is a publicly traded company. Oh, wow. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, but I guess it's what you get when you get $2.3 billion to run away with in your architecture project. To put that in perspective, I think the Las Vegas Raiders stadium cost $1.9 billion to build. And this is a crazy NFL stadium that can fit 70,000 people. The Sphere can only fit 18,000 people and cost more than this. But overall, I think it's just a really cool thing to see and something that I don't know if you could build in a country that doesn't have so much wealth and so many consumers willing to spend money on entertainment. Um, it's a pretty cool thing. I've been doing well with the tie-in so far, so I'm going to make another tie-in. Aside from the sphere, maybe the greatest marvel of engineering is humans' ability to fly. However, Warren Buffett, the angry old man, says if a far-sighted capitalist had been present at Kitty Hawk, he would have done his successors a huge favor by shooting Orville right down. What do you think that means, Patrick? I don't know. It sounds like he's kind of salty about something. <laughs> he, he most definitely is. So the airline industry has been a money pit. I read somewhere that over the course of its lifetime, the airline industry really hasn't made that much money. At the same time, though, I mean, you think about all the, all the other stuff that airlines affect, and from a capitalist perspective... 
it's got to be one of the more important inventions, honestly, because it's able to connect you with different things. At least before COVID, a lot of the business world relied on business trips that required plane trips. And then so much of travel is vacation is based on on flying. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can agree with Warren Buffett on that yet. I mean, I haven't lost billions of dollars to the airline industry, but obviously he's saying that a little tongue in cheek. But the problem with the airline industry, like you said, it's so interconnected with everything we do. It, we can use it to ha deliver packages or travel anywhere in the world. But it's a very, very difficult business, Buffett continues, because you're dealing with millions of people every day. And if something goes wrong for 1% of them, they're going to be very unhappy. It's going to tarnish the brand's reputation. And it's just overall a major headache to deal with. So what's historically been the problem with airlines and their profitability? Well, there's this analyst who works with airlines. His name is Josh Barrow. And he says, historically, airlines have gone bankrupt a lot. Airlines have huge upfront costs to buy airplanes and build networks. Then they can compete fiercely on price which pushes profit margins down to a level that can't support those capital investments, especially through economic downturns when demand for air travel dips. And then his theory is that investors keep putting money into airlines through the decades because of the romance of air travel. It's a really cool thing that investors want to be a part of, and, and they see how it's changing the world. Unfortunately, some of the most profitable businesses are the most boring businesses and vice versa. But one point I want to kind of hit on a little there is that airlines spend a lot of money trying to be the exclusive or near-exclusive providers for certain routes. Maybe that's, oh, Detroit to Denver. You're like one of the few airlines that does that. And because that, it causes a lot of price wars leading up to that, right. which can erode a bottom line pretty quickly. Now, I'm going to turn it over to you, Patrick, because you have done a lot more research on the airlines, and you can maybe outline some of the problems that we mentioned. Yeah, so if we want to go back a few years, um, COVID hit the industry pretty hard. And so they're still trying to recover from all the layoffs. It has a bit of a deeper impact into the inner workings of the industry. So in COVID, the industry was hit by both supply and demand problems. For example, supply, Boeing, the airline airplane manufacturer, it hasn't recovered to its pre-COVID levels yet. And it's the second biggest commercial airplane su supplier behind Airbus. Airbus hit uh, was hit pretty hard, but it also recovered. Boeing and Airbus are currently the only large passenger plane suppliers in the industry. When COVID dropped the uh, ticket demand for flying, the demand for planes and plane production fell as well, right? And then after COVID, demand for flying is picked back up again, and so has, therefore, the demand for planes. Yeah, and that's part of the problem with airplanes that you see is you can't just build an airplane overnight. So a lot of people or airline companies, they place orders when demand for planes is really high or these air lease companies place orders when demand for tickets are really high. But sometimes by the time those planes have shipped, the demand has flattened out a little bit and then you're not able to make money on the new planes that you have. You're kind of stuck with inventory almost. Right. So after COVID, you know, demand for airline tickets goes up. And then now they've created the problem that the supply of these planes has to pick up as well and follow that in order th for them to be profitable. This problem is compounded um, because Boeing laid off thousands of their employees when demand was low during COVID. And so now they not only have to 
ramp up their production levels of planes, but they also have to ramp up their recruiting and their training and all of that, which, which can cost a lot of money as well. I see this as an opportunity for new entrants. The threat of new ent entrants is something we call one of the Porter's five forces in an industry analysis. So there are up-and-coming companies like China's Comac, um, Jap Japan's Mitsubishi, and Russia's UAC. They're all starting to work on large passenger planes. So these could really be potentially threats for Boeing and Airbus, um, especially if they're able to undercut these companies at their current prices. Yeah, the one thing I wouldn't be as worried about if I were Boeing is you got to believe that if China or Russia becomes a threat for passenger aircraft, the U.S. is going to subsidize Boeing planes so they're cheaper. Yeah. Because I don't think the U.S. wants Americans flying Chinese or Russian-made planes just from a national security standpoint. Maybe not just that they don't want Americans on Chinese planes, but that they don't want Chinese planes like based on American soil, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying is, yeah, if you have Chinese planes uh, with all the technology and how much we can remotely control, I think that could be a, a very dangerous national security thing. And another one of these big problems for the airlines companies was and is and will be a pilot shortage. So Oliver Wyman is an aviation consulting company, and they expect a global shortage of 80,000 pilots by 2032 and 30,000 of those are supposed to be in North America. There's this just aging workforce that's causing that because the government's not going to allow a 90-year-old to fly a plane because that's just dangerous and not a good idea. So there is a limit on how old you can be when you're flying commercial planes. Uh, and Congress actually just raised this maximum age from 65 to 67 partially to address this, but this isn't going to be a long-term solution. This is just a short-term, I don't know, not even a fix. It's kind of like the debt ceiling solution, just push it back. Well, and also recruiting pilots. I don't know about you, Patrick, but like I still want really qualified pilots flying my planes. <laughs> and I know there's a lot more automation and that sort of thing, but it's not something, and I, you know, with all due respect to uh, the people who work in the service industry or, you know, some of the strikes that we've seen, I feel like those are maybe a little more easily replaceable because there's not as much training that goes into that. But getting a pilot trained is a multiple year process. And for the airlines hiring, they really want good pilots because they can deal with having delays. But if a pilot crashes a plane, that's going to cause way more harm to the company than, oh, every once in a while you're going to have long delays. Right. And one thing to look out for is um, this recruiting war that could very well be starting here. Who's going to be able to recruit faster? Or for the long-term future, is someone going to be able to roll out a plane that flies itself or that someone can fly remotely? Yeah, we talked about Sphere and that futuristic. I don't think we're quite ready for a self-flying plane. Could logically be the next step, though, if we have self-driving cars. I don't know. I, I don't think our society has that much trust, but I feel like that's more of a philosophical rabbit hole we're going down versus more of an investing one. Let's go back to delays. So I know a lot of people are upset about delays. Like I said, if you've flown this summer, you may have even encountered them. And part of this is understandable. So taxpayers help foot a $25 billion bill to help bail out the airline industry at the beginning of COVID. And that was supposed to mitigate a lot of what we're seeing now. 
Um, and this is even happening with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. So at one point during this summer, 77% of airports had air traffic control towers that were less than 85% staffed, which people or the government classifies as like a critical short staffing. And this problem has gotten a little better, but it is still a problem where people are understaffed. And interestingly enough, if the government would shut down in the future, the debt ceiling is only suspended until mid-November. Uh, the government would shut down all new trainings for air traffic controls. Luckily, they're always going to be there. We don't have to worry about not having air traffic control unless like, they'd go on strike or something. Which has happened. It has happened, yeah. Didn't Reagan kind of put a stop to that? Oh, yeah, he fired them all. <laughs> yeah. But either way, I mean, this is another problem that isn't going to fix itself overnight and I think is kind of like a long-term uh, thing the industry has to deal with as air traffic control, if they're short-staffed, they're just going to be way slower and cause delays that we, we saw a lot of this summer. And we've gotten a more recent headline as well with this whole airline industry. The largest U.S. airlines, or some of them, are hunting for thousands of jet engine parts, which were installed with fake safety certificates. These parts were installed on Boeing and Airbus's pla Airbus's planes, um, which, like we said, were are the two biggest commercial plane manufacturers. The parts were made by GE, um, General Electric, but GE is suing AOG Technics for selling the parts with the false documentation. So AOG is a middleman between the maintenance and the repair organizations and GE who actually built the parts. Okay. Or GE would have used the parts in constructing their engine. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. So this f false documentation means that airlines cannot verify the health, reliability, and safety of their engines. However, Delta, for example, said that you know, less than 1% of their engines are affected overall. It, it might not turn out to be a huge thing, but all of the ma major airlines are currently working on replacing the faulty parts, and the AOG investigation is ongoing. So how does this affect airlines and their stocks? It affects, for one, investor confidence in the safety of air travel, but demand for air travel is, I would say, still pretty inelastic. People are going to fly anyways, I would say, and perhaps a share price would only go down if a plane actually crashed, like you said. You know, 9-11 saw a $1.4 trillion hit in the over overall market value. You know, airline stocks were hit hard. Um, the major ones lost 40% across yeah. the board, pretty much partially because they had to temporarily ground all flights. They had to pay compensation to their passengers, and the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ actually closed for several days after 9-11, so they weren't able to take on any debt, weren't able to be traded. So most of the market took a major hit because of low investor confidence and lots of fear of potential terrorist attacks in the future, but everything came back to normal within about a week. So even like a major hit to the U.S. economy, like 9-11 was, this this AOG thing, is it's not it can't have a lasting effect on stock prices. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Obviously, you always want to hedge because if this airs on Saturday and, you know, something uh, with the engines falls apart, you know, that's something entirely different. But even for the airlines, even a year after 9-11, they were pretty close to having rebounded. It took airline stocks longer um, than other companies. But I think it really went to show after that November when the U.S. government established TSA, I think people started to realize, hey, this you know, was obviously a terrible event, but it's kind of back to business as usual as far as the habits of people flying. And you hope that that's something like we see in this uh, situation here. 
Now, as a final little story, I've always thought it's interesting how airlines, different airlines, make money. Because on one end of the spectrum, you have Qatar Airlines charging these $7,000 or $10,000 seats that you might see on videos. And then you have Spirit Airlines that charges $30 for a domestic flight. I found this interesting statistic that Spirit Airlines, actually more than half of its revenue per passenger comes from those add-on fees. I right. don't know if you've ever flown a budget airline before. I have, Spirit. Did you pay any of the extra fees? I did. Um, I did not pay for <laughs> the water, which is not free, but I did pay for a carry-on bag, I believe. Well, so a pro tip, I know we're not travel advisors either, as well as not financial advisors, but when I fly my $30 Spirit Airlines flight from Minneapolis-St. Paul to Detroit, I just have like a tiny little duffel bag that's not a carry-on, and wherever I travel, I just buy clothes when I'm there because it's cheaper, which is actually kind of crazy. But oh, yeah. more, shall we say, prestigious airline like Delta, about 33% of their revenue will come from premium products, which they're not really charging the add-ons for the economy class passengers, but that includes their Sky Miles, uh, first class, business class. Overall, just a, a very interesting industry based on how high you can go. I think some of the most ways people associate wealth is with people who are able to afford like fifteen or twenty thousand dollar international flights. Mm -hmm. Yet it also can be this terrible experience where you're stuck next to uh someone that you don't want to be next to on a cramped flight. But being proficient in segues, I think I'm gonna take this opportunity to note that time is running short and we've got to make it to our gate in time. So me and Patrick are going to be signing off. If you've missed any of this episode or any past episodes, you can find those on Twitter, also known as X at Wall Street Pod. Patrick, is there anything you want to leave our audience with? That's a negative, Captain. With that being said, thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Mm-hmm.